So my name's Mike. Uh, most of you know who I am. Um, I'm a hospital chaplain, and uh, a couple things to know about me um, before I, I begin is that uh, I'm an Enneagram 1 with a wing 9. I'm also an empath, um, so I feel deeply. Um, and you all, this is, this is so bad that I'm often the last one to leave our house uh, in the morning. And we have the cutest 30-pound mini golden doodle that you could possibly have. And I'm the one that has to lock his crate as I leave. And can you imagine what that does to my heart? Like every single time it, it breaks it. Um, so some of these things will come out in today's uh, sermon, some of them more explicit than others. Um, the other thing to know about me is that I absolutely love movies. The story draws me in and encapsulates me, and I am just focused on, on the story for the next 100 to 120 minutes or so. And uniquely, although I don't think it's unique, but... Um, I actually feel like I'm in the story. Does anybody else feel that way? Um, so it's fascinating how movies have this effect, and it's one of the reasons why I think they're so popular. We fantasize and we dream about being in the story, and, and uh, for me at least, um, finding, finding uh, participating in, in the story against all odds to, to win and to have the happy outcome. And so I find myself kind of fantasizing about this sort of thing. And it's possible I'm an oddball and, and I'm weird and, and my wife might say I am. Um, but the U.S. movie industry is also worth $95.45 billion, so perhaps I'm not so unique. But did you know that movies have a simple framework to them? No matter how much money is spent on the set, it's a simple framework. They have uh, three acts in total, a setup, a confrontation, and a resolution. The first act is the introduction of characters, including the antagonist and protagonist, and the introduction of the problem. This act lasts really only about 15 minutes. It's quite short. The second act is the bulk of the movie, and it's often the confrontation that occurs between the antagonist and the protagonist, with the antagonist having the upper hand. The protagonist is determined, shows grit, refuses to die, is MacGyver-like, and if you know what that is, great. That kind of dates me, I'm sure. But is MacGyver-like in creative problem-solving, but does not yet overcome the evil genius of the antagonist. This act can last about 70 minutes or longer. It's the bulk of the movie. The final act is resolution, where the protagonist wins the duel and everyone leaves happy. I like that because I'm an empath. <laughs> this, la this act lasts generally around 10 to 15 minutes, so it also is very short. Growing up in the church, I often thought of hope as the final destination. If hope was a movie, I thought it occurred in the final act of the uh, of, of the movie, where the issues were, were resolved, if there was pain, it's turned into joy, 
and everyone leaves happy. But hope actually lives and breathes in the second act of the movie, not the third. This was a shock to me when I discovered that that was the case, but it also made complete sense to me. About a year and a half ago, I gave a sermon that highlighted a scientific article uh, I read as part of my work as a hospital chaplain. The article is entitled, The Science of Hope. This article fascinated me because for the first time in my life, I recognized the concreteness to hope instead of hope being an abstract and elusive concept. Hope is active. It is not passive. It's an action we participate in to move towards the outcome, the destination that we are wanting. Greg Boyd is a theologian and pastor of Woodland Hills Church in Minneapolis. He, uh, he once preached a sermon series that turned actually into a book that he wrote uh, titled The Myth of a Christian Nation. During this series, 1,000 people left his church. At the time, Boyd was in the same denomination and conference of another famous Reformed pastor named John Piper, whose church is also in Minneapolis. Piper is a Reformed evangelical figure who often seems to embrace white male theologies. He grew up in a Baptist church in Tennessee, has an MDiv from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a Doctor of Theology degree in New Testament Studies from the University of Munich. He is a prolific writer, and his theology is heavily formed from the theological concepts of the all-embracing sovereignty of God. Reformed folks have a theological concept of God involving God's sovereignty, often framed through the lens of predestination, where the primary actor is God, or in other words, they emphasize the agency of God over the agency of humans. Boyd was raised Roman Catholic, became an atheist as a teenager, converted to Pentecostal, Pentecostalism at age 16, and at age 21 became an Orthodox Christian. Quite a journey. And he's a character. I've met him in person. He has an MDiv from Yale and a PhD from Princeton. He's a smart, smart person. Boyd's sermon series led him to discover Anabaptists and Mennonites, and his congregation has now moved from the Swedish Baptist denomination he was once with Piper in to now being Anabaptist and in some aspects, Mennonite. Boyd's journey has also led him to a theological concept called open theism. Essentially, this theology, or an aspect of this theology, believes that the primary actors for God are humans. The emphasis, then, is on human agency, as opposed to the divine agency Reformed folks emphasize. Human agency involves active participation from us, while divine agency involves passive, <clears throat> passive participation. The action is being done to us. Do you see the difference there? Which is important because how we understand and define hope is different depending on what kind of lens you are looking through. And this is what has confused me over the course of my lifetime. And I didn't grow up Reformed, but somehow 
over the course of my lifetime, I just thought you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and things would magically, mysteriously, I mean, we would use Christianese language, but it would happen how it's supposed to happen. And so I did this, particularly at times of suffering in my own life. I would pray and pray and pray and wait and nothing happened. I mean, nothing happened in terms of what I thought was happening. I was waiting for the action to be done to me or for me rather than actively participating with God in the work. Now, please don't hear me say, Mike says prayer doesn't work. Because <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Rather, as we pray, we need to participate with God in working towards that goal of which we are praying for. Piper seems to say, wait on God. Boyd seems to say, work with God. Piper seems to say, hope comes in the final act of the movie. Boyd seems to say, hope comes during the second and main act when the protagonist is striving to overcome the problem. Richard Rohr puts it this way. Many scholars over the years pointed out that what is usually translated in Paul's letters as faith in Christ would be more accurately translated as the faith of Christ. It's more than a change of prepositions. It means we are all participating in the faith journey that Jesus has already walked. We are forever carried inside the corporate personality that Christ always is for Paul. That's a very different understanding of faith than most Christians consider. Most Christians think having faith means to believe in Jesus, but to share in the faith of Jesus is a much richer concept. It is not so much an invitation as it is a cosmic declaration about the very shape of reality. What Rohr is saying and what Boyd does through his work with open theism is, I think, part of what's happening in our text today. True, there is the cosmic reality of the miracle of the conception of Jesus and the eschatological hope that the reality of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection means for all of us and all of humanity. But I think there's also a simpler daily reminder to us as we grind out this thing called life. We can find hope through the loving words and actions of others as we share as we walk through difficult, painful, and joyful circumstances in our own life, because as Rohr says, sharing in the faith of Jesus is different than belief in Jesus, and as Boyd suggests, we are part of the action instead of waiting for the action to be done to us. Hope, then, is born in the hard work of the second act of the movie, the struggle to overcome, and not the third act. Hope comes through the journey, not the destination. Our text today is Mary's Magnificant, which is Luke 146b through 55, and I'll just read that. You can follow along. I'm reading from the um, NLT version. Oh, how I praise the Lord! 
How I rejoice in God my Savior, for he took notice of this lowly servant girl, and now generation after generation will call me blessed. For he, the Mighty One, is holy, and he has done great things for me. His mercy goes on from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm does tremendous things, how he scatters the proud and haughty ones. He has taken princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. And now he has helped his servant Israel. He has not forgotten his promise to be merciful, for he promised our ancestors, Abraham and his children, to be merciful to them forever. One of the striking things from this passage, and it wasn't said in my version, but it's the word humility. This word occurs twice, once in verse 48 and the second time in verse 52, though not with the same Greek tense. The first one in verse 48 is tapinosis and means humiliation, be made low, low estate, vile and essentially means that it leads one to perceive and lament their moral littleness and guilt. Verse 52 utilizes the word as an adjective, and it helps describe being humiliated in circumstances or disposition. Now, the first century biblical environment was primarily patriarchal. And isn't it interesting, in Mary's song, she uses this concept of humility. Listen, this context was scandalous. She was a pregnant, betrothed teenager. Not only that, but she was pregnant, and she didn't have sex with her fiancé. So can you not only imagine the whispers and the gossip and the condemnation for being pregnant, but how about being pregnant and your fiancé isn't the father? Joseph was devastated, and he couldn't fathom what happened, thinking that she had an affair with someone. He was a kind man and wanted to divorce her quietly so that she would not be condemned in the worst kind of way. Mary's song, I think, notes the scandal and the wonder of how God uses someone scorned by society, not only in her position because she happens to be female in that society, but also because of, and perhaps of, the scandal. And this is what's interesting to me, because over and over again we see in Scripture how God subverts societal norms and expectations and embraces marginalized people to bring about amazing things. I think these are examples of open theism, or as Rohr puts it, to share in the faith of Jesus. And looking at this scripture and in the scripture context, one cannot help but notice the obvious involvement of two women, Mary and Elizabeth. This is important and cannot be overlooked. So today I'd like to share three practical concepts of hope that I see them in the context of this passage and I'd like to do that using three separate stories in my own life, highlighting the voice and actions of women 
that brought me hope. And though um, Melissa and Brittany are not in my examples, they sure could be. We have amazing pastors. And I am just thrilled to be part of this congregation. So the first... The first thing I want to say is, is the gift of encouragement as a way of experiencing hope. If we back up the text a little bit in verses 39 through 45, we see how Elizabeth gave encouragement to Mary. Remember, though Mary had this amazing experience with God and was told her son was going to redeem humanity, I can't even imagine, It had to be scary. She had to have questions. She had to wonder. She also likely understood the practical scandal of it all. And when Elizabeth greeted her, it had to be such welcome and encouraging news because she was validated and affirmed and confirmed. So I I don't know exactly why when we are either overwhelmed with sadness or joy we have have the need to express that to other people but we do so a story in my own life Um, last year uh, about april or may um, we had two patients come in to our icu that had COVID, and they were serious, seriously ill. Both patients were in their late 30s, early 40s. Both of them were placed on uh, ECMO. And if you don't know what ECMO is, it's one of the highest, perhaps the highest, inter- it was the highest intervention that they could have been on. So ECMO is a very complex machine that pulls out the blood from the human body runs it through this machine, reoxygenates the blood, and puts it back into the body so that your blood, when it's sitting at 70% oxygen, you, you can't survive over a long period of time. So it reoxygenates that blood. Even, even with those interventions, these patients started to decline. I worked with the families over the course of about 30 days and eventually these these patients died. About a month later, another patient comes in, COVID positive. He's in his late 50s. He has uh, whatever that word is. I can't say it this morning because I don't have it in my notes. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And I worked with his wife and his 21-year-old son Uh, over the course of the next 30 days. He, too, declined. On a Friday, I was uh, down in the ICU, and I noticed that they had family in the room, and the son was uh, at bedside looking at his dad, and I just put my arm around him, and my my, my eyes just welled up with tears. I said nothing. I just was with him. And I left that day feeling sad, but didn't know how, 
how that story was going to end. And I come in on Monday, and I find out that he passed away during the weekend. And I just sat in my office, and I just cried. Later in the day, I was down in the ICU, and I walked into a room and didn't have a history with a patient that I was walking into and didn't know what was going on, and this patient was hooked up to ECMO. And it was like an out-of-body experience. I, I really felt like um, a steel framework just started at the tips of my toes and was just coming over me. And it was like my mind was saying, um, you need to protect yourself. You need to protect yourself because this is too damn painful. And so I walked out of that room. I didn't do my job. I walked out of that room and I thought, I'm not going to get involved. This is too hard. So later in the day, I was on the third floor and I walked by a nurse and as my practice is, I often ask them how their day is going because I'm a chaplain to them too. And uh, she talked about her day and she was having a great day. And then she asked how my day was going. And whenever I'm asked that question by nurses, I often am incongruent with how I actually feel because I often say, my day is going great. But I think the Spirit nudged me that day and I just looked at her and I said, my day sucks. And I explained why. And I was completely blown away by the amount of compassion and empathy in what she said and in her body language to what I said. She was a pastor to me in that moment. And it encouraged me. And it gave me hope. Don't underestimate the gift of encouragement. The second gift is the gift of joy. Notice the exuberant joy of Mary's song. It's like she was not only overcome through her miraculous experience with God and the encouragement and validation and confirmation from Elizabeth, but it's like that joy just could not be contained. She, it just bubbled right out. So early this week, during rounds, I participate in rounds with the interdisciplinary team, and during rounds, each nurse comes up and talks about the patients that they have, and then uh, kind of barriers to discharge is, is why we do that. And so this one nurse, um, during her rounds, said, Mike, can you visit this patient? She's tearful today. She just found out that her stepson, stepson's mother uh, just died. I said, sure. So later in the afternoon, I walk into this room and uh, I ask this patient about the death of her stepson's mom. And, uh, and, and she shared that, that her stepson is very autistic so autistic that he needs 24-7 kinds of care. And though she was extremely sad that his mom died, she was also 
expressed so much joy that he was going to come live with them. He lived in Oregon, lives in Oregon, and so he will make the transition to come to Indiana. And I just was, she was not tearful during my conversation with her. And I was just struck at how much joy she had in adding a child to her household. And as we talked, she kind of shared more of her story and she said, she said she grew up in a household that really believed in God and believed in the gifts of God. And she, uh, she learned um, sign language and so developed this ministry in their church. Apparently they had uh, a lot of deaf people in their church and so she uh, developed this ministry of sign language and, and would be in front of the church signing um, what the preacher was saying. And, uh, and the elders came up to her at one point and said, listen, we can't have a woman in front of the church. And she said, okay, I'm willing to teach a man how to do sign language. No man showed up. So she continued. Well, the elders came back to her and said, listen, we can't have a woman in front of the church. It's just not right. And, uh, and she took her dad with her this time. She was still a teenager. And, um, and so as they talked with the elders, she was like, listen, it's important that these people hear what you're saying. If there's anybody else, I'll be glad to teach them. Nobody else showed up. And so she continued, and they let her continue. And then she shared with me how, and by this point, like, I am, what's the feeling that I'm experiencing? I guess I, guess I was experiencing happiness and joy. She said she's a, she's the kind of person where when she's in public, she just goes up to complete strangers and she asks them if they need a hug. She said her husband feels like she's weird. <laughs> and I, I just cannot express to you the joy that this person, like her face was glowing. She was in the hospital herself needing care. She was grieving an aspect because her stepson's mother died and just the expressions and stories that she shared just was full of joy and it gave me energy it gave me joy and it gave me hope i deal with dying people and dead people almost every day and and though god has gifted me for it it still is wearing on me and so this gift of joy renewed me and refreshed me to be able to do my work following that visit. The gift of joy. The third gift is the gift of presence. If we take our text and read one more verse, in verse 56, we learn that Mary stayed at Elizabeth's house for three months. That's a long time. 
I wonder how Mary was blessed through Elizabeth's presence during that time. I also wonder if Mary held on to these experiences during the course of Jesus' ministry where his life was threatened at multiple times. Certainly during the crucifixion, can you imagine watching your own child die? And then the resurrection where God's promises were experienced. The gift of presence cannot be understated. So those of you that know my story know that about three and a half years ago, my biological children stopped communicating with me, and I have not seen them since. I developed PTSD symptoms, I went into therapy, and I was a wreck. About three or four, maybe five months into therapy, my therapist said, Mike, I want to share a story with you. I said, okay. And he said, um, he said, psychologists did experiments on monkeys, and this was like in the 1970s. This was before, um, before the ethics of doing such a thing was, was uh, an ethical thing, which I'm so glad it is. Can you imagine our little Hank <laughs> being subject to some of this stuff? Like, it breaks my heart. They did these experiments on monkeys, They took a monkey, and they administered shock treatments to him. And of course, the monkey developed anxiety and depression. So much so, they continued to do this, that he developed so much anxiety and depression that even when they wheeled the shock treatment equipment into the same room, into his eyesight, like he became extremely anxious. Just the sight of it made him made him anxious so they continued to do this for a while and of course this monkey was not thriving then they added a second monkey into his cage a monkey that had not been given shock treatment a monkey who was healthy and whole. And the very presence of this monkey caused the monkey that, that was having the shock treatments to be much less anxious, much, much less afraid, much less fearful. The sight of the equipment didn't raise his anxiety level near to the level it had been. During the shock treatment, this other monkey was in the cage. The shock treatment did not cause near the anxiety or pain. He said, Mike, from all that you have said to me, he said, your wife, Abby, is your cage monkey. And that sounds weird to say. It sounds really... (laughs) It sounds really derogatory, actually. (laughs) But my wife, Abby, is my cage monkey. She stayed with me and was present with me in the deepest moments of my pain. 
These three gifts, encouragement, joy, and presence, gives us opportunities to participate with God in hope. It helps us strive towards the goal that we are seeking. Sometimes we go through difficult and challenging circumstances in our lives. Relationships crumble. We have health difficulties. Loved ones die. Or we feel alone. And it may seem like there is no hope because it's elusive or a mirage. In those times, it certainly is difficult to hold on to the eschatological hope we have because we are in pain. But hope is indeed born through the loving words and actions of others in those moments as they give us encouragement, joy, and presence. This is the second act of the movie, the theology of open theism, or as Father Richard Rohr puts it, to share in the faith of Jesus. This is Mary's song. Pray with me. Jesus, we are so incredibly grateful for the people that walk with us, particularly in those moments in which we are in pain, we are scared, we are afraid, but also in those moments of joy and happiness to be able to walk in community with one another participating with you in whatever way that that means we're grateful for these gifts that bring us hope when we most desperately need it we pray that you we're, we're thankful that you work through us to provide encouragement and joy and presence. When we most desperately need it. We thank you for Mary's example, her courageous example. We give all these things now to you. In your name we pray. Amen.